Mitch Monticello. Coming up next, Trailer Talk with Sabrina Artel. Stay tuned. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. I want to get the language so right that everybody here will cry out, Yes, I'm black. I'm proud of it. I'm black and beautiful. The civic heroism of Martin Luther King Jr. marks a peak in any history of 20th century America. We're listening this hour for the rest of the story. The basics are familiar. At his death by assassination 50 years ago, he was then just 39 years old, Dr. King had been the incandescent voice in a 15-year civil rights movement that wrote race out of our law. He is remembered for it on the holiday calendar in monuments and street names and avenues in hundreds of cities and towns across the land on postage stamps around the world. This hour, we're listening for what is not on the MLK stamps or in the civics books. The religious conviction, the radicalism about wealth and power, the labor historian Michael Honey strikes a keynote for all of us. If we know Dr. King by his I Have a Dream speech on the Mall in Washington, 1963, we may well be missing the man and the point. The problem is that the general public is still going on the I Have a Dream speech of 1963, which is a marvelous speech, but people don't put it in context. Mm. And they tend to see King as an advocate for colorblind American capitalism that appeals to a very diverse audience and very often commercial interests and politicians and so forth. And so the way King gets translated to a lot of young people is like, well, that was the civil rights movement that was over and we solved that problem. And as they always say, but we have a long way to go. Well, that is hardly enough to understand the prophetic vision of King. If you only see King as, quote, a civil rights leader, then you're missing more than half of the story. Michael, honey, help us recalibrate a very complicated character. And I'm thinking specifically, he's a PhD intellectual. He's a campaigner on an almost Napoleonic scale. He's a radical about rights and justice, and he's also a Christian saint. Well, the first thing to know about King, in my opinion, is that he's the grandson of slaves and the son of sharecroppers who moved to the city and became ministers and built Ebenezer Baptist Church. He's a third generation coming along who is raised during the Great Depression, born in 1929, and graduates from Morehouse University around 1944-45. His education as a postgraduate student and then a PhD student at Boston University is very important. It gave him tremendous training, probably more training than almost any other preacher of the time, not just uh, black preachers, but white preachers as well. So that's all very important. But the way King talked about it is he talked about himself as the son of slaves and sharecroppers, and he talked mm -hmm. about the movement as a movement to create a second emancipation. 
So his March on Washington speech in 1963, I Have a Dream, was aimed at trying to get the Kennedy administration to start a second emancipation, which would be um, not only for civil rights and voting rights, which they were still fighting for in 63, but also economic justice. And King talked about this all the way through. It wasn't new. A lot of times people think, oh, we have the civil rights king from 55, the Montgomery bus boycott, to the Voting Rights Act in 65, Civil Rights Act in 64. That's the king that most people are familiar with. From 65 to 68, we have his campaign in Chicago to desegregate the urban centers of the North. And we have his Poor People's Campaign to try to get the country to reprioritize from spending for war to spending for jobs and education for all, health care for all, housing for all. It was a campaign to wipe out poverty. And then, of course, his very strong stand against the Vietnam War, where he stood up against uh, Lyndon Johnson and all the forces in power about American imperialism. And then last, his stand for the Memphis sanitation workers in 1968, where he was killed. Yeah, we need to be reminded that the I Have a Dream speech was never the end. It was almost an opening round. We know that I've been to the mountaintop speech the night before he was killed. Tell us what he was doing there in Memphis. Why sanitation workers? He had a long relationship with organized labor. And it started with the Montgomery bus boycott when um, the left wing of the labor movement in the industrial unions, like the United Packing House Workers Union and others, came to King's support during that Montgomery bus boycott. He spoke to most of the major unions in the country between 1955 and 1968, and he had strong relationships with public employee unions, with hospital workers unions, with distributive workers, people in the cities. So he went beyond unions to a campaign for poor people, and the Poor People's Campaign was an attempt to sort of bridge the gap between organized labor and the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement with the idea that we can all unite around ending poverty in America. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of that campaign, he was called to Memphis by James Lawson, a great supporter of labor rights himself in Memphis, to support the sanitation workers who mm -hmm. were in six weeks of a strike against the city of Memphis. And he came to Memphis uh, with almost no preparation, but he gave this marvelous speech on March 18th, 1968, which laid out the basic issues for poor people that it's a crime for people to live in this rich country mm. and receive starvation wages. It sounds like he's talking about the fight for $15 an hour today, He's really talking about the right of workers to organize today. He's talking about the interconnection between poverty and anti-union forces today. He's talking in a way also about the 1%. Yes. In a number of his labor speeches, he even uses the phrase, the 1%. Really? Yes. 
these issues that we're dealing with today are not new. You know, American capitalism has always been raw and exploitive and particularly on the racial side, oppressive to people of color and especially African-Americans and uh, started out in slavery, which you can't get any cheaper wages than slavery. And so King was fighting this all his life. Yeah, the labor radical, the critic of capitalism is not on that postage stamp. But there's another piece I'd love you to comment on, and that is of a passionately convicted religious man who sees himself taking up the cross of the crucified God-man and following him. Yeah. Well, uh, again, the Martin Luther King papers at Stanford have provided us a great source of material on King's black social gospel. Martin was following that from his father, who people call Daddy King, who also was named Martin Luther King Sr. Daddy King was following Luke in the Bible, um, the Jesus command, you know, to serve the poor, serve the weak. And King thoroughly took that into his understanding of Christianity at a very young age and preached that his whole life mm. through. And, of course, as Cornel West would say, you know, the black church was where you learned to take care of other people. It was social service. It was taking care of homeless kids. It was building a political community for the right to vote. And Ebenezer Baptist Church did all of those things under mm. King's father, Daddy King, and under King himself when he became the leader of that church. Dr. King loved to tell a Good Samaritan story. Can you give us the, the radio version? The Good Samaritan story is the man going down Jericho Road from Jericho to Jerusalem, traveling down a dangerous highway, and people traveling down this road being afraid to stop to help anyone, and a man left by the side of the road who'd been beaten and robbed, the ministers passed him by, the rich people passed him by. Who finally stopped to help the men was a Sumerian, somebody of a different race who was looked down upon. King, seeing it as a kind of a equivalent of a black American, stopping to help a white American who had been robbed and beaten and saving that person's life. Well, he uses that story in his last speech in Memphis he calls on people to practice what he calls dangerous unselfishness, mm. that people think that self-preservation is the first law of life. He said, no, other preservation is the first law of life. Mm. If you don't help the other, then you too will be victimized. And what he was essentially calling on in Memphis was for the middle class to join with the working class to solve this strike. It was very specific what he was trying to get people to do. But beyond that was the larger story, which is that you die on the cross. King had that image in his mind all along, that that is what would happen to him, and he accepted that. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen 
the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. To the Promised Land is the title of Michael Honey's new book on Martin Luther King and the fight for economic justice, due in the first week of April. Professor Honey teaches history at the University of Washington in Tacoma. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. On the mind inside the voice of Martin Luther King Jr., the ideas inside that language, the scholar's complaint is that though King Day is now ritual, the weight of the man's intellect is neglected. That shelf of books and articles he wrote on human dignity, justice, history. Brandon Terry, the Harvard humanist and professor of African-American studies, is one of 15 essayists in a collection just out on MLK, The Philosopher in Motion. I think oftentimes we have a conception of King as an activist or we invoke him as a symbol of a kind of Christ-like sacrificial figure. Mm. Less frequently we, we refer to his intellectual output. But for him, I think all of those things hung together. Now, he gave this eulogy for W.E.B. Du Bois on the 100th anniversary of Du Bois' birth mm. in, in, in New York City right before he died, a couple of weeks before he was assassinated. And there he, he has this really striking phrase. He says, Du Bois combined the intellectual and the activist, mm. right? It's a thing that he really holds on to. And then he also has this line, he says, Du Bois was a genius and chose to be a communist. So <laughs> the way I hold those lines together is that sometimes really critical reflective thought about the social problems that we face may lead you to radical solutions or controversial counterintuitive ideas. Mm. But those ideas are going to be at work in the best kind of activism, right? Ideas are going to inform the activism. The activism is going to inform the ideas. And it's only in the meeting of those two that you can muster mm. the insight and wisdom and courage to make the kind of sacrifices that King was willing to make because he saw a way forward. He saw things that were worth dying for. He distilled those moral ideals and was able to impart mm -hmm. them and share them with the people he labored with in the civil rights struggle to kind of hold each other up mm -hmm. in their uh, joint willingness to sacrifice. On this matter of, of the intellectual project of his life, you take up a line and disagree with it from Cass Sunstein in which he says that you can think of his King's civil rights project as a sort of conservative undertaking to go back to the fundamentals of the Constitution and clean it up and repair it and make it whole for all people. And yet you, you don't, that's not your line. You see him in a much more original venture to write something new and to create something new, define something new. What was that? Well, I think the conservative backward-looking framework trains our judgment in a certain way. It trains how we read King, how we study the civil rights movement, and it trains our attention so that we look for certain things and don't notice things that are sitting there right in front of us. Hmm. Right. So if you go back to just to take one example, if you go back to the early speeches from Montgomery, King often doesn't mention the founding charters at all. He describes Montgomery as part of a worldwide revolution, a worldwide uprising against white supremacy that is of 
a piece with the struggle against colonialism in Africa, Asia, India. And I mention all of that because, you know, if we treat this sort of existing constitutional order as a stable arbiter for African-American political aspirations, particularly right. the ones of the civil rights movement, we start to th take certain things for granted that King precisely did not, right? He thought we really needed to radically rethink American federalism, that the kind of concessions we make to existing municipal boundaries were going to always be a blockage in the way of the integrationist future that he hoped to bring about. He thought that our militarism and the way we organized our solidarities with other countries was deeply flawed and needed a kind of moral reinvigoration and a sense of moral maturity mm. to rethink our antagonistic relationships with other nations and other peoples around the world. These are things that I don't think come out when you assume he's just redeeming the original project. Brandon, reintroduce Martin Luther King Jr. as an intellectual. How do we see this man? laboring over text. I also want to know what company was he joining when he got into that mode? Who were his ideals? Who were his rivals? Who was he speaking to? So, so what that project really entails for me is a kind of attempt to justify one's actions in public to potential allies mm. and other members of this society. And so when you're asking people, and we don't think about this enough, it's like activism is asking people to risk a lot. Right. Particularly when you're confronting the kind of resilient, vicious form of domination that went by the name Jim Crow. You know, he goes to, to Birmingham. He says to his advisors, everybody's not going to come home. Mm. Some of us won't leave Birmingham. He himself did not leave Memphis. Right. And when you ask people to risk that level of security, safety, the goods that they managed to cobble together in an unjust society, you've got to give them reasons. They've got to know why are we doing what we're doing? What's guiding us? What principles do we make decisions based on? Mm. Right. And that's, again, about this question of respecting people as people who can act on the basis of reasons, people who have mm. rational judgment, people who aren't just going to be moved and governed by the lowest passion or base rhetorical appeals. It's making an argument. So I think that's really crucial. And in doing that, I think he's joining a long tradition of public Christian intellectuals. You know, he was obviously deeply influenced by Niebuhr, uh, Howard Thurman, uh, author Jesus and the Disinherited, and also African-American tradition, mm. right? He's constantly invoking W.E.B. Du Bois, He's obviously familiar with and influenced in certain respects by James Baldwin and Ralph Ellison. But he's drawing from that tradition of, you know, people who are trying to move at once in the register of philosophy and politics mm. and chart a way forward, give reasons for it, appeal to fellow participants in that struggle and justify going this way instead of the way of other folks mm. who are clamoring for their allegiance and solidarity as well. I wish you'd recap that argument around black nationalism, because in hindsight, it seems that the differences between Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and various branches of the movement, they were not insignificant, but they were thin compared to the agreement, compared to, for one thing, the honoring of Martin Luther King as himself, the sort of the spear point, but also there was a single project. I mean, Malcolm's really complicated because... As the Manning Marable biography shows, he lives a life of reinvention. He's changing himself mm -hmm. throughout. But if you take 
Malcolm X from the classical Nation of Islam period, right, when he first comes to prominence, you think Mike Wallace documentary, The Hate That Hate Produced, right, that mm. kind of era of Malcolm X. I think it's a great contrast because, you know, classical na Nation of Islam doctrine, for instance, is in no way troubled by capitalism. <laughs> like the view is that actually what we need is a black, a separate black economy, right, that reparations need to be given land needs to be granted so that black people can kind of participate in the same sorts of capitalist enterprises yes. wealth creation uh it's so interesting pursuit of uh national greatness quote unquote as other nations and that the problem is we're being denied that right mm. king particularly the, the mature king doesn't think of capitalism that way, right? You can pick almost any Malcolm X speech from the 50s, and he's inveighing against people who are dependent, quote unquote, on welfare, right? And people who've lost their sense of self-respect and dignity by being on welfare. King, on the other hand, is saying the structure of the modern economy is such that it produces endemic unemployment, whether people want it or not. And we need to secure for the question of people's basic dignity some kind of standard guaranteed income or guaranteed work and that th there's nothing undignified about that. <laughs> Are you at odds with the romantic narrative and wh what's the other way of looking at it? Right now we have such a dramatically pessimistic reaction to the kind of romantic story about civil rights, about the Obama administration that we're told for so long that many people of my generation are now obsessed with the kind of pessimism that doesn't actually track, you know, I think the contours of what political life really looks like. Brandon, take that apart. Who's your generation? Which disappointments are you talking about? And which agenda is looking forward? Well, so I think they're, my generation are people who kind of in their late 20s to late 30s, and they're people who grew up off a romantic narrative of the civil rights struggle mm -hmm. that was reinvigorated, I think, in many quarters by the election of Barack Obama. And that yeah. um, the Obama campaign in particular, and often his administration, you know, explicitly narrated themselves as the realization or triumph of the civil rights struggle, right? So Obama says... I'm a member of the Joshua generation, mm. right? So King is Moses, died before there, but... re reaching the promised land, but yeah. we have, in fact, reached the promised land and we will um, achieve the ends and aims of that struggle. Uh, you know, those are the speeches he gives at Philadelphia, at Selma, at Morehouse. Um, and when that kind of rhetoric ran headlong into, you know, the intractability of racial injustice, the limits of Obama's own peculiar and not very King-like uh, attempt to deal with those sorts of questions of racial injustice, economic injustice, and certainly militarism. Yeah. It couldn't be farther apart on that question. In your book, Cornel West, in his essay, says that the memory of King, the legacy of King, was his fundamental motivation for fierce criticism of President Obama after the administration got going. I don't think it was on the rights issues or justice issues so much as on the fundamental economic issues, the bailouts, the connection to Wall Street, but especially the extension of the war from Iraq into Afghanistan. I mean, do we understand yet how that happened? 
what piece of the King legacy did Obama? Well, this is forget? what I, this is what I was going to say is that I think Cornell is also really worried about the integrity of symbols. You might think that even if you disagreed with President Obama about any number of things, that there's a separate question about whether President Obama should have draped himself in the legacy of Martin Luther King to do the various kinds of work that he did. Right. So so let me just give you one kind of concrete example of, I think, a failure or something where where President Obama failed to learn and, and could have actually done something quite different. And this doesn't even deal with the the kind of reaction he faces in Congress or um, from the Republicans. But the, the, one of the first foreign policy questions the Obama administration faced involved the Somali pirates. So remind us. Yeah. And so early in the administration, there were a group of pirates off the coast of East Africa who had traditionally been fishermen. But as European fishing vessels, primarily from France, had come through, they had destroyed, utterly destroyed the fishing stocks of these nations, uh, particularly Somalia, ruining the livelihood of these fishermen and violating international law. Right. They're in nations waters that aren't their own fishing in ways that are illegal. And in retaliation, these fishermen off East Africa start hijacking shipping vessels. And one of the first questions that Obama faces is he, you know, he has one of these crises that he has to negotiate where the pirates have captured a vessel. They're holding people hostage for ransom. Are we in a Tom and, Hanks movie? You know, this is a, okay. Yeah, that what the movie was based on. on, on OK, on go ahead. Things. And, you know, instead of drawing European countries to the table to discuss the violation of international law, mm. defending the rights of East Africans to have their territorial integrity respected, uh, bringing down the force of the United States on behalf of those questions, reframing these issues for the broader public to think about. The move was made to look tough on questions of, quote unquote, terrorism and assassinate those uh, those fishermen. Um, to me, that was a decisive moment because it was it was about a kind of political performance mm. of toughness, of projecting strength that was nothing like that. If you read King's speech against the Vietnam War, not the famous Riverside one, but the one he gives in Los Angeles a couple of weeks before that, yes. he talks about the virtue of maturity there and that the things that we think of as these like projections of strength, these ideals that we're living up to, they're all hollow idols. They're not as real as we think they are. Mm. The real strength, the real maturity would have been to try to restage these questions and move the world order, particularly at that time when he had enormous political capital around the world coming off of the Bush disaster and try to move the world toward a more just relation. Right. Even if that meant allying yourself with the most weak, the most vulnerable, uh, that's what the kind of king sacrifice would have been. And that was the perfect time to do it. What would Dr. King be observing and saying to Black Lives Matter? I think he'd be really moved by those who emphasize these questions of economic justice, who connect the militarized policing and brutality in the United States to militarism abroad. I think he'd be less enamored and more frustrated with those who try to treat racism or white supremacy as a catch-all explanation for all forms of black disadvantage and racial inequality. Um, he was usually more precise about the sources of that. I think he'd also be worried about those wings of the movement that tip 
a little too close into what he objected to in the black power movement, which is mm. uh, making a kind of metaphysical basis for black identity um, and indulging in, in kinds of anger that that work to cause you to lose track of sympathy and suffering for other people. And so you'll sometimes hear these phrases like, uh, you know, one of the one of the jokes on it'll come on black Twitter. It's like white tears. At some level, it's ironic and you get the deflating use of it. So, you know, in certain cases, it's perfectly fine. But when that starts to veer into things like, you know, I look out at the opiate epidemic hmm. and my only response to it is not one of humane recognition and sympathy and a call for justice and aid and mercy. It's one that says, well, they didn't respond to the crack cocaine epidemic like that. Yeah, we don't hear much about the beloved community these days. Well, I think it goes back to a question about the relationship between ideals and practices, right? So when King writes about all labor having dignity, right? Yeah. So all labor has dignity. And he's, and he's down in Memphis at the sanitation worker strike. And he says, you know, the garbage man is, is just as important as the doctor in, in their labor, right? Because if we if, we, if we're here to, to defeat disease, it's just as important to have sanitation as it is to have people who can kind of treat diseases at this very professional and scientific level. Right. That, that they're all working together to create a cooperative atmosphere where people can flourish. You know, he's also he's always talking about uh, his struggle in, encompassing the PhDs and the no Ds. Right. So, he's, I mean, he's very mm -hmm. attuned to the to, to all the subtle ways in which we construct hierarchies of value. And I say all that to say. That part of how you defeat the beloved community is you tear away at the very idea of cooperation and day to day practices and habits. Mm. Right. So if people feel like, you know, they're watching everybody cobble together seventy thousand dollars a year to go to private school and to elite colleges to have.